As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I have to say, if my family and friends listen to this podcast, they're going to say, what? <laughs> Over this- hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 190. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, today's guest, Beth Wallen, has reached a crossroads in her reading life, and she's come to me looking for a jumpstart for this new season. Beth describes herself as a lifelong learner, and she's about to have more time open up in her schedule to challenge herself, learn new things, and dive deeper into topics that already fascinate her. This is truly a precious opportunity in a reader's life, and Beth really has the guts to go against the grain of her usual reading taste, which makes for interesting and exciting literary matchmaking. Let's get to it. Beth, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Anne, for inviting me. I hear that you are facing a real hinge moment in your reading life right now. Yeah, I am a physician, and I am a short way from retirement. I've already started my slowdown. Um, and I imagine in the next year, year and a half or so, I'll be completely done. I've been a lifelong reader and I've always believed in lifelong education. And even though I've had a tremendous amount of formal education, I really feel like I've missed out on a lot because when you get a science degree, you take the minimum humanities your degree requires. And I never took art history or survey of American fiction or any of those things. And I certainly didn't have a lot of time to do that when I was going full speed in my medical career. Mm -hmm. So now I'm having this increasing span of available time, and I'm trying to figure out what all to do with it with my reading life. I want to try and push myself a little bit, do some different things, read some different genres than I'm used to, maybe even make myself feel a little uncomfortable. I'm starting to do things like attend guest lectures and meet the author events. And I've been taking some classes at my local community college and that sort of thing. But I'm just kind of looking to see what input you might have. Beth, I feel like your dilemma tells us so much about you in a nutshell. One, so many people would not plan this far ahead for what they're going to be reading in their retirement. Two, I imagine that you work with and encountered quite a few people who have more science-focused degrees who do not lament the fact that they never took art history. Now I set myself up with numbers. I feel like I need a third. And... um, (laughs) 
I'd love to talk about that lifelong learning. Is that a value that you feel like you were raised with or born with? Uh, no, I, w- I was raised with that. My mother was a teacher. That was kind of instilled in me in a very young age. And I can remember one time my mother went back to school when I was young to get more teaching credentials. And I can remember some Saturdays she would say, Beth, I'm going to go to the library today to work. Do you want to come with me? I'm like, sure. She's like, I'm going to be there for several hours. Not a problem. The library was just a weekly occurrence at our house. We constantly went to the library and brought home sacksfuls. And my mother gave me no restrictions whatsoever. She was of that philosophy. If I was interested in it, I was ready for it. She had no idea some of the things I was reading. (laughs) How do you feel about that in hindsight? Well, there were a few things that I know I read a little too early and am still traumatized from it. (laughs) Tell us about one. Well, I read Lord of the Flies at a pretty young age, and that is just awful. It's just an awful book, and it scarred me for life. I just I think about those boys on that island and how they descended into anarchy and chaos and brutality, and it just stuck with me forever. And that was one that I definitely picked up too early. Is there a flip side to that memory? Do you have any pleasurable or happy early reading memories? I also remember that we had this one suburban library near our house that was, you know, in a wealthier neighborhood and had a fancier library. And we would go there about once a month and they had this huge children's room, just gigantic compared to any other library I'd ever been to. And they had this wall of nothing but I would say middle grade or less biographies you know, Betsy Ross and the presidents and athletes. And and I worked my way through that entire thing. You know, I read every single one of them. And then when I was done, I went back to the beginning and started over again. They were on the shelf in alphabetical order. And I just love those books. I can remember some of the illustrations in them to this day. Beth, as an adult, what has that pursuit of lifelong education looked like while you have been working full-time as a physician? A lot of it has been keeping up with what's going on in my career, um, in my field. But also, my uh, lifelong learning has been doing things like the great courses. I listen to those in my car all the time. I sort of think those should count as a book if you're keeping a tally. Especially so many of them are so literature-focused. Exactly. Any favorite topics? I do kind of tend towards the humanities, since that's where I feel like I'm deficient. And there were two in particular that I really loved. One was um, books that change the world, books that'll change your life. The letters of Bonhoeffer all the way to Uncle Tom's Cabin was in there. It was kind of a survey. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. another one, since I do not typically like science fiction. I did their course on the history of science fiction. I thought, well, maybe if I learned a little more about it, I could like it a little bit better. And it was interesting. I did learn a lot, but I'm not sure that I like the genre any better. Oh, that's so interesting. Something you said in your submission was that to match my unusual interest in urban planning, which there's no good reason for that. I've just always found it fascinating Mm -hmm. that you have an unusual interest in two fields. My two outside quirky interests is I really love 
cosmology. I loved Carl Sagan. I love Stephen Hawking. Um, I'm currently reading some works by Carlo Rovelli. I just am fascinated by, you know, the Big Bang, black holes, quantum theory, all that kind of stuff. I just, I almost think if I could have done the math, I would have done quantum physics. (laughs) I just really find it interesting. But, you know, the math was just more than I could handle. And my other quirky interest is the Supreme Court. I'm a Supreme Court junkie. I read the newsletters of their decisions. I've read biographies of the various justices. I just find it just an interesting topic, and I, I love reading and learning about that. Are you able to put your finger on what it is about the Supreme Court that you find especially compelling? With everything, the backstory is always very interesting. And some of the backstories of some of our most momentous decisions are fascinating. And some of the backstories of how various justices got appointed are really, really interesting. It kind of takes a little bit of the shine off, you know, (laughs) once you learn some of these backstories. Um, But yeah, I just find it fascinating. Now, some might have thought, wait, who am I kidding? Beth, I might have thought that with your interest in cosmology, that you might really enjoy pivoting over to science fiction because you do enjoy novels. But tell me why that has not worked well for you historically. Part of the problem, I think, is I have a stereotype of what science fiction is. And I assume that science fiction is going to be spaceships and robots and strange planets and artificial intelligence. And I, I, it just, for some reason, that doesn't interest me. It just doesn't in, in, embrace me. One of the books on my favorites was listed as a science fiction book, but it doesn't seem science fiction to me at all. I don't really know what qualifies as science fiction. Maybe I have a stereotype of what science fiction is. Well, we will enjoy digging into that. Beth, how do you like to choose what you read now? I read a lot of book reviews, but I have a complicated relationship with book reviews. I I don't really want anybody's opinion of the book. I just want to know what the book is about. I don't really care whether you thought it was well-written. I just want to know, is this a plot or is this a topic that I'd be interested in? So most book reviews, I, you know, the New York Book Review, the London Times Book Review, various podcasts, that sort of thing. I just kind of want to hear about the book and a few sentences of what it's about, and I'll take it from there. I don't want a big analysis of it. (laughs) (laughs) What elements are you looking for? Story, and I am a big fan of place. I really like novels with a really strong sense of place. I've been a real fan of Jane Harper lately. I've read both The Dry and The Lost Man, and I love the way she writes about the Australian outback, you know, the desert and the dirt and the heat. You read it and you're you're there. And I really love that. My recommendations from an assortment of podcasts. There's getting to be so many book podcasts out there. I could spend half my life listening to the podcast (laughs) and not getting any reading done. But it's kind of interesting. There's a couple of podcasts that I listen to where the books that they read or recommend are not in my wheelhouse at all. We do not (laughs) connect at all. But I like listening to them because I like knowing what's out there. And every now and then there will be one. It's like, eh, maybe I'll give that one a try. Because you're interested in maybe branching out a little. Exactly. What do you find exciting at this point in your reading life about branching out? 
I like hearing what other readers are reading and then them being swept away from it. And I'm like, huh, I never thought that kind of book would have that kind of power. You know, it's like, I know that there is uh, power and emotion in the written word, but I feel like I've boxed myself in. I'm reading the same things kind of over and over again, the same sort of things. I was like, well, maybe I can have a moving experience in reading coming from a whole different angle. What is your current blend of fiction and nonfiction? Because it's clear that you love to learn. We see that reflected in your reading, yet you also appreciate the powerful experience that, well, emotionally, that a novel can really deliver quite well. I would say that my fiction to nonfiction is about, you know, three to one. Uh, I always have nonfiction going, always, but it's not as much as my fiction. I discovered I had this little quirk that I didn't know that I had. I would pick a fiction or a nonfiction book, and I would pick a complimentary fiction book to go with it. And I didn't even realize I was doing it for the longest time. I mean, I think I, when I first noticed it, I read uh, Widow of the South by Robert Hicks. Mm-hmm. I paired it with a nonfiction book called This Republic of Suffering by Drew Faust. And it, it's a book, it was a book about the Civil War, and um, they first started with identifying remains and recovering remains, and it was modern military burial and the establishment of military cemeteries. It, it sounds gruesome, but it was a really moving book. Mm-hmm. But it was paired with this Widow of the South, which was a book about a woman whose southern plantation was basically turned into a field hospital and then ultimately a cemetery. You know, and then I realized I had been doing it all along. I read Columbine by David Cullen along with We Need to Talk About Kevin by Lionel Shriver. And those two, you know, were very complimentary. And now I do it with intention. I try and find a fiction book that goes with my next nonfiction. Coming up on my to-be-read list is, is David McCullough's new book, The Pioneers. Uh My husband has it right now, so I have to wait my turn. (laughs) I was trying to think what I might want to read along with it. And what I came up with was Willa Cather. I've never read anything by Willa Cather. Maybe, and you know something a little more contemporary that might pair with that book. Well, the first thing that came to mind when you said Pioneers was These Is My Words by Nancy Turner. That's about 20 years old now. It's definitely more contemporary than Willa Cather. Sure. But not on the new release table either. Yeah, I've heard you speak about that book before. I have not read it. When you contemplate your future retirement and how you will have increased reading time, does it feel spacious and open to you in a pleasant way or does that feel a little bit terrifying? I can see how both would totally be an option here. No, I feel like it's pretty spacious and open, and I'm excited about it. And, uh, you know, you hear about people as they approach retirement or they get a little fearful of retirement. They're not sure what they're going to do with themselves. I don't have that problem. (laughs) I, I feel like I have no difficulty filling every minute I may have. And I'm okay filling it with books at this point. So Nothing is good for your reading life like some good bookish momentum. Yes. 
Beth, you know how this works. You are going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now. And we will discuss what you may enjoy reading next. The first book I love is Reading Lolita in Tehran, a memoir in books by Azar Nafisi. I think this book came out around 2003. And when this book came out, I recommended it to everybody. The author was a professor of literature in Tehran. And as Islamic fundamentalists kind of seized control of the universities, her female students were being harassed, her curriculum was censored, and I think ultimately she was forced to wear a headscarf and she quit. Over the next two years, this teacher gathered seven of her most committed female students to meet at her house to discuss, quote, forbidden Mm -hmm. Western literature. You know, there's this, this visual of these young women who were literally sneaking out, arriving at her house, and they sit around in Western jeans and T-shirts and lipstick, and they discuss Lolita and Gatsby and Jane Austen. I just thought this was a book about a group of women who took refuge in literature. You learn the backstories of the individual women and what happened to them. And the book also goes into literary discussions. So it's like you're a participant as well. Some people don't like the book for that reason. They're like, oh, this is like being in school. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, I liked it. I thought it was a book about the power of literature. And it was a book about books, history, and female relationships. So for me, that was a triple win. Have you read anything else by Nafisi? I have not. I only think she's written one or two other things the last time I looked. It's been a while, but this is the only thing of hers I've read. Okay. Yes, a memoir, but she also has a book. It's called The Republic of Imagination, and she calls it A Portrait of America in Three Books. Beth, I was tempted to ask, what do you think those books will be? But that's just mean. So they are (laughs) The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Babbitt, and The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Another book I've been meaning to read for a very long time. Oh, you must read that book. Tell me why. Sell me on it, Beth. The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. I read it so long ago. I don't remember much of it, but I remember the feeling. It was another one with a really strong sense of place. Uh-huh. You know, the, you you are there. I really, I did love that. Beth, what did you choose for your second book? I just finished this book in the past six weeks or so. It was called Good Morning Midnight by Lily Brooks Dalton. This is the book that was listed as science fiction, but I didn't really think it was science fiction. Mm-hmm. I remember recommending this to Knox McCoy on an episode of the podcast maybe two years ago. When I think of science fiction, this is not what I'm thinking. I'm glad I didn't know it was considered science fiction or I probably wouldn't have picked it up. They also say that it's apocalyptic or dystopian, and I didn't get that feel from it at all either. The book is has two stories that are told in parallel, and the first story is about an elderly astronomer who's chosen to isolate himself on this Arctic research base, and the base goes under this emergency evacuation for reasons that are never really explained, but something bad is happening in the world, and everybody's bugging out. This astronomer refuses to leave. He's content to spend whatever time he has left studying the heavens in the observatory. And the second storyline is about a crew on a spaceship that's returning to Earth after a two-year mission to Jupiter, but they've lost contact with mission control. They can't reach anybody, and they're coming back to Earth to what nobody knows. But I thought the book was quiet. I thought it was atmospheric. 
I thought it had wonderful descriptions of the Arctic and deep space. And I thought it was a lovely book about loneliness and lost connections and regrets and acceptance. And I, th- I thought it was lovely. So it sounds like this book had all the elements that you really enjoy in a story, except for that science fiction label. Do you find that so many things get tagged as science fiction just because they happen to involve cosmology, one of your favorite things, right? Yeah, I think probably that's true. And I hear what you're saying because one of the books that I really love is Station Eleven, which is tagged as dystopian or apocalyptic. And I can see why that is. Yeah, I read that book and I did like that book. I thought it was a hopeful book and I wouldn't have hung a dystopian label on it. When you hear science fiction as the first descriptor leader, uh, so you're picturing movies with robots and rocket ships. You're picturing Star Wars. Exactly. And that's not what you want to read. You are here for character-driven, emotionally complex, lyrical novel. Right. With a strong sense of place. And it sounds like it's okay if that strong sense of place is a setting that you would see in science fiction. Yeah. Beth, what did you choose for your third favorite? I picked The Honest Truth by Dan Geminhart. I have to say, if my family and friends listen to this podcast, they're going to say what (laughs) over this book. Ooh, I'm excited to hear. I am not very sentimental, and I think you could be gracious and say I am a bit cynical. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a middle grade book that really surprised me how much it moved me and it stuck with me. It's about a boy named Mark, and I just thought he was a great kid. He was funny, and he writes haiku, and he carries a camera around with him all the time. And he has this best friend, Jesse, and this great dog, Bo. And bottom line is, Mark is sick. He has cancer, and he's tired of it. You know, he's sick of being sick. He's sick of being teased, and he's done. And he was inspired by his grandfather, and he decided to take off with his dog and climb Mount Rainier, even if it's the last thing he ever does. And his best friend struggles with whether she should keep his secret. And it's a boy on a quest story. It's a great boy and dog story. I thought it was touching, and I just really loved it. People have compared this with The Fault in Our Stars, but I think that really does this book a disservice. The Fault in Our Stars, I thought, was full of teen angst and schmaltzy romance, and none of that is in this book. I really enjoyed this book. How did you pick this one up? I have no idea. (laughs) You know, I accumulate books. They sit around in piles for long periods of time, and then I finally get around to picking them up, and it's like, why did I ever get this book? And I can't recall. I don't know how this book landed in my hands. I really don't. It's a gift from the universe, Beth. There you go. Now it's time for you to share about a book that was not for you. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you know, I know so many people love these books and I just don't want any hate mail, (laughs) you know, but I just cannot embrace the Dark Materials trilogy by Philip Pullman, the Golden Compass, the Subtle Knife, the Amber Spyglass. I just could not get anywhere close to these books. Well, I've never read them, so you can tell me everything. The Golden Compass was originally chosen by my book club, and we ended up reading all three books. I just thought it was plodding and pretentious and pompous, and you would 
think it was promising. I mean, it's a young girl who travels through an alternate universe to rescue a friend, and there's magical landscapes and talking animals. But I swear this author said, I'm going to write a trilogy, and I'm just going to pack it full of every ridiculous thing I can think of. It was just awful. (laughs) And the whole book club hated this trilogy. We had to make a new rule. No more series. (laughs) It was just too much. So would it be fair to say that you want the things that happen in the book to serve the story and not just be window dressing? Exactly. Beth, what do you want more of in your reading life? Well, I'd also like to find some more fiction with strong female characters in my age group. If you if you do a search for that, you'll get the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman. <laughs> <laughs> or they're all stories about interfering grandmothers or fussy mother-in-laws, or it'll be a story about an older person with a sweet relationship with a younger person, or an older person who's reflecting back on their life. I mean, my peer group, my friends are bicycling across the country and they're falling in love for the second time or maybe even the first time. I mean, they live interesting, dynamic lives. And I find it difficult to find novels with that particular age group. You're so right. This is an issue that I really enjoyed discussing with Michelle Wilson in episode 175, because she also is no longer a 20-something or a 30-something and wants to read about characters like her who aren't precious grandmothers or peripherally involved in the story, but who have their own story. And along those lines, I was just happy to see this week that Kathleen Rooney, the author of Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk, just signed a contract on a new book that's coming in fall 2020. So that's a long way to wait, but I know that that has been a title that people have been pleased to point to as a book highlighting an older female protagonist. Of course, it really indicates the situation right now when so many people point to one specific title, and now we're waiting 18 months for another. And Michelle actually said she did not like that book at all. (laughs) There aren't enough titles in this space. And something that I do find encouraging is that there are so many readers nodding along saying, yes, this is something we need more of Mm -hmm. because publishers like to sell books. So more new authors, more new-to-you genres, more older female protagonists. And you also mentioned more audiobooks. I love audiobooks. I probably maybe a third to 40% is audiobooks. That's a lot of audiobooks, Beth. I listen to them in the car. I listen to them while I cook. I listen to them while I'm doing laundry. I listen to them when I don't have a physical book in my hand. So yeah, I like audiobooks quite a bit, but I struggle with finding good performances. I have an Audible account, and they just have a four-star rating. And I don't think people give a lot of thought to the narrator's rating, quite frankly. I mean, they'll rate the book. They'll say, oh, the book is great. But the performances, oh, sometimes they are all over the place. And I have listened to some that I just thought were absolutely fantastic. The reading the book wouldn't have been nearly as wonderful as listening to it. And others, it's like, okay, I had to stop after the first chapter and said, I'm going to read this one. You know, the narration was just so not good. (laughs) So reviews have not served you well. So when you have found books that you really enjoy, have you just happened to stumble upon them? Or is there a strategy you found to help steer you towards a really excellent performance? 
I find the excellent performances recommended to me, either, you know, the podcasts or the book reviews. I do listen to the sample from time to time on the Audible website. But even then, because it's, it's a very short sample. And if you have a, a lot of characters, a lot of accents, you're not going to be able to tell that in a short sample. Mm-hmm. As you say this, I'm realizing my favorite way to find good audiobooks is, I, I do listen to the sample, but often it is just that, a sample, and it doesn't give you a complete portrait of what the reading experience will be like. But once I find a narrator I love, I will prioritize listening to that specific narrator and I'll just see whatever they've read. And if anything that's high on my to be read list is narrated by that, like my current favorite whose work I'm just plowing through is Bonnie Turpin, who narrates a wide variety of literature. She was one of the voices in the multicast performance of Lisa Patton's Rush, her novel set at Ole Miss. She narrated The Hate You Give, which was amazing in other YA works like Children of Blood and Bone, and The Sun is Also a Star. I love the book, So You Want to Talk About Race, nonfiction. She narrated that. She narrates some more literary fiction like The Care and Feeding of Ravenously Hungry Girls. Just she's so versatile, but her voice is so good and her performance is so good. Another narrator whose works I really enjoyed are George Newbern. I think I first found him when I listened to A Man Called Uva, but he has so many books that he's done. I listened to his works a little differently when we watched Scandal and I discovered that he was a killer for hire and generally bad dude on that show. Like, oh, I think I'm glad I didn't know that when I was listening to Uva. Really? But he has such a great voice. Davina Porter is another favorite. Searching someplace like Libro or Audible by narrator can help some readers steer in a direction. Of course, at a certain point, you really can exhaust all the works narrated by that narrator that you are truly interested in. But hopefully by that point, another bookish friend or bookish resource, like perhaps Audiophile Magazine that does reviews specifically to audiobooks, can put another good book or good narrator in your path so you can plow through their whole catalog. A good audiobook can keep you busy for a while. Oh, yeah. I recently listened to The Huntress. Oh, I thought that was excellent on audio. I did too. I really love the narrator on that one. Though I'm sorry, I don't know who it was. <laughs> Saskia Marleveld, and she did a fantastic job. The Huntress is told from three different perspectives, and it's not always easy to change your voice for each character so that the point of view is distinctive to the reader, yet also not irritating the way the narrator chooses to do it. Exactly. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one quite a bit. I know that when I'm talking about books here on What Should I Read Next or One Great Book or on my blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy. If I've read it on audio, try to tell you, hey, this was amazing. Or sometimes what I end up saying is, I read this on audio and I would not recommend that. But if you have any good audiobook recommendations that you think would be good for Beth, please come share them in the show notes. Oh, please. (laughs) (laughs) Keep everybody busy listening for a good long while. Exactly. All right, Beth, let's take a look back at your books. You loved Reading Lolita in Tehran, Good Morning Midnight, and for the wild card, is that fair to call it that? It sounds like this is a little bit different in your reading life. The Honest Truth. Yeah, I would say that was a bit of an aberration, but I really liked it. (laughs) What I think we want to look for are compelling character-driven stories with a strong sense of place. You're a fan of lyrical writing, of really beautiful prose, it sounds like, but that is not Mm -hmm. an essential. I think none of these are essentials, but we're looking to develop an experience that is moving to you as a reader. 
I'll say you really like a good backstory and seeing how that's playing out in your characters' lives in the present day. I think that's fair. Okay. Beth, I'm also keeping this cosmology in Supreme Court firmly in mind and (laughs) the fact that you're willing to take a chance on some new stuff. Beth, how do you feel about reading brand new versus not brand new? I have no preference. I'm open to either. The first book I'm wondering about for you is the new one from Liz Gilbert, an author who is no longer in her 20s or 30s herself and has deliberately chosen to have her protagonist reflect that, like in her book, The Signature of All Things, about a female botanist. And she has a brand new one just out June 4th called City of Girls. Do you know anything about this? I know nothing. Well, this is a big, fat book that has a strong sense of place. It's set in New York City beginning in the 1940s. It's set in the theater scene. And the house that the protagonist lives in has its own very strong sense of place. And the beginning is so great. I wish I had my copy right here so I could read it to you. But I remember reading the opening sentence out loud and laughing and Will going, what are you reading? I'm like, you've got to listen to this narrative voice. It's amazing. Well, that sounds excellent. The novel spans many, many years. So while we do meet Vivian when she's 19 years old, we leave her when she has established a life for herself that has no men in it because that is not what she was interested in. She gets into a little bit of trouble. Well, she's kicked out of college. She was supposed to do her family proud and instead she got kicked out. So she got packed off to her Aunt Peg, the disreputable aunt who has been running a theater in New York for years. Not reputable people. And Vivian soon discovers that not reputable doesn't mean not any good or not any fun. What unfolds is a story of how she forms a life for herself over the course of, I want to say something like 40, maybe 50 years. Liz Gilbert explicitly said that she wanted to explore female sexuality and human desire. And it's not graphic, but there is a lot of sex in this book. So heads up to readers who do not want to read about that. She said she was in her personal life coming out of a period where she had lost her partner and an experience deep grief. And she said in her work, she wanted to find a voice that was fresh and funny. And I was really surprised by how funny this book was. Uh, I remember reading in her letter in the front of the advanced review copy that she wanted to write a book that just went down like a sparkling champagne cocktail, just fizzy and effervescent and light and sparkly. I wasn't sure what that would look like until I read it. I'm like, oh, I get what you're saying. How does that sound to you? That sounds perfect. I do like those big sweeping decades kind of personal stories. This should be good. When does it come out, did you say? June 4th. All right. So it'll already be out when you're listening to this. Seeing that you like books where you can really stay with the characters and see how their decisions play out over the course of their lives and that features strong relationships and specifically strong female friendships and unexpected relationships that really end up meaning the world to you. This book has all those elements. Perfect. Beth, I'm wondering about a book that will surely get labeled sometimes as science fiction. And I can see why, because it involves rocket ships. But I don't think that's the genre you would give it. Are you interested in hearing more about something like this? Yes. It's the new book. uh, It was just out in early May from Erica Swyler, who wrote The Department of Speculation. This new one is called Light from Other Stars. Now, she is not a science writer. And I think that might help you feel confident in embracing this book that does involve rockets. But it's a coming-of-age story. It's told in two timelines. It has really well-developed characters. It has a tone that I think 
echoes Good Morning Midnight and reading Lolita in Tehran that you really appreciate. And the writing is just really beautiful. The story unfolds in two timelines. One of the timelines begins in 1986. There's a young girl named Netta. She's 11. Her father works at NASA. All she wants to do is grow up and become an astronaut. And in Florida, in 1986, she is there with her parents and she watches the Challenger explode. This has huge implications for her community where so many people work in the field and for her family. I know many readers my age and older really are relating to that timeline because we remember exactly where we were and how we felt when we watched the Challenger explode. So the events of this story are fictional, but she's building off this very real historical event. The other timeline unfolds in Netta's adulthood where she is on a spaceship, just like you were describing in Good Morning Midnight. The world is falling apart. Terrible things are happening and scientists are scrambling to find an escape hatch for humanity. One of the things they're trying to do is figure out if we can colonize this other planet. Netta's job is to lead this mission to see if that is possible. So as far as sci-fi elements are concerned, we do have the rocket ships going to outer space. But Erica Swyler also plays with the concept of time in really interesting ways. Because of something her father did long ago in an effort to right a wrong, he has actually changed time in a way that has unexpected and devastating implications for her community. Oh, that's interesting. And Netta is trying to figure out what is going on. Can it be untangled? What is to be done? You should know that parent-child relationships are big in this book, as are family secrets, uh, why we keep them, and what both the secrets themselves and the fact that we tried to keep them means for us. And I'm glad that it sounds interesting to you. Yes. Jotting it down. Beth, for your final book, I'm really curious about some books that do play off your interest in science. Specifically, you said you were reading Carlo Ravelli right now. I'm wondering about Alan Lightman for you. Lightman is a physicist who also writes essays and fiction. He does science writing that's also very philosophical. Have you read anything by him? Not a thing. Oh, I think Einstein's dreams could be amazing for you. Oh. He theorizes that it's 1905. Albert Einstein is dreaming repeatedly about time, the concept of time, as he's writing his very real historical paper on the electrodynamics of moving bodies. And he's making slow but steady progress on his special theory of relativity. And this is Lightman's 100% fictional account of what Einstein was dreaming about and all the ways he imagined time in his sleep. I think he calls them one of the many possible natures of time in the process of writing this paper. Wow. They're like little vignettes showing what time could be like. It's a small book. It's, I mean, it's small enough to read in an afternoon and it's very unusual. It's completely delightful. It's my favorite thing that I've read that he's written, but I really liked In Praise of Wasting Time from a few years back, which is an essay advocating exactly what it sounds like. And The Accidental Universe is another very interesting nonfiction book. The subtitle is The World You Thought You Knew. I have to read you a line about it from Publishers Weekly. Lightman is one of the few physicists who can name check the Dalai Lama, astronomer Henrietta Leavitt, Dostoevsky, and dark energy in the same work. Wow. And that sounds like it could be up your alley. Yeah, there's a lot going on. To get something a little off the beaten path for you, I'm wondering about a Neville Shute novel from what I believe is the 50s. 
It's called On the Beach. Beth, I don't know what it is, but based on something you said, I keep finding books for you where everything is chaos. (laughs) Okay. Is that something you actually enjoy reading about? Actually, I do. Okay, (laughs) that's good. This is from Neville Shute, who many people, if they've read his work, it's either this, On the Beach, or A Town Like Alice, which is quite different. Although they're both set in Australia. Shute was Australian. The premise is, there has been a nuclear war in the Northern Hemisphere. Australia is in the South. Citizens in this small Australian town know that this giant cloud of radiation is coming for them. And it's only a matter of months before not just life as they know it, but life is over. So this is the point. It sounds so grim, but it's... I know, it does. That sounds grim. (laughs) It's really fascinating. While I can tell you that, I mean, there is no miracle. This destruction is inevitable. It's very reflective though. And seeing how this coming disaster affects the different people awaiting it. And you look at them as a group, but also you get close-ups of a few individuals and you get to hear their backstories and how they got to the place they are in life and in their relationships. You get to see how these different people are facing certain disaster. This is a classic that has really stood the test of time. Although you can see that this is a book definitely of its time as well. What do you think? No, that would be interesting. I I can go quite dark. I just have to alternate it with things not so so dark. (laughs) Well, in that case, we will leave that pick on the table. Okay. All right, Beth, of the books we talked about today, which we we, uh, covered some ground here. If you wanted to read a little bit differently, I think we're doing it. City of Girls by Liz Gilbert. Light from Other Stars by Erica Swyler. We threw in Einstein's Dreams by Alan Lightman. And On the Beach by Neville Shute. What do you think you'll read next? Ah, oh, that is so hard to choose because they all um, have a pretty good tug. Um, but I, I think I might start with Light from Other Stars. I might start with that one. I think that might be the first. Well, I can't wait to hear what you think. I can't wait to tell you. Beth, thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thank you for, again for inviting me. This has been fun. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Beth, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 190, and it's where you will find the full list of titles we talked about today. Next week, I'm talking to Andy, a reader who fell down the rabbit hole of a mega popular series, and it pretty much ruined her reading life. So she's asked me to reach in and pull her out into the world of new titles and new literary adventures. Here's a sneak peek. Before I picked up Outlander, I was reading many books a month. I'd say maybe five, six a month. Now I'm just reading Outlander. (laughs) And I know I'm not the only one because I'm on many Outlander like fan groups. I always tell people when I talk about Outlander, Outlander kind of breaks your soul apart and then they put it back together and then they break it up again. (laughs) (laughs) It would do me good to read something completely different. Subscribe now so you don't miss a book or a beat in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. But first, join us on Friday for our current season of One Great Book, where every week I pull one standout selection off my personal bookshelves and tell you all about it in 10 minutes or less. New episodes are on Fridays. Look for One Great Book wherever you get your podcasts. If you are on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Anne with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. 
Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings like my new book cover. If you're not on the list, you can fix that now by visiting What Should I Read Next podcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. If you enjoy this podcast, please spread the book love by telling or texting a friend, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, or checking out our Patreon at patreon.com slash what should I read next, where we share even more bookish goodness with you each week. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!